Before we get to this week's episode, first a word from our sponsor. New from Morally Superior Games comes this year's must-have playset, Resistance USA, featuring not one but two action figures. A man's home is his castle, and a castle needs defending. Introducing the White Knight, with stretchy pants and political slogan hat. Activate his rage fingers and hear him spout vitriolic tirades against his enemies. Of course, a warrior is only as good as his weapon, and this white knight packs some serious heat for when things get real. After all, who knows when he might be called upon to defend his most precious treasure, the sandwich-making woman sold separately. If activism is more your speed, take it to the streets with the social justice warrior. Armed in denim and flannel, the SJW carries a dry erase protest sign to keep up with today's political climate. Activate the Vox Populi, and it utters the Vinley understood references to Marx, Hegel, and de Beauvoir. Patrouille Sent, sold separately. Resistance, USA, White Knight, and Social Justice Warrior. Who's right? Who's wrong? It's up to you to decide, because in the resistance, morality is relative. Look for it this fall from Morally Superior Games. Thanks to Morally Superior Games, or more likely, or more uh, correctly, that is, the uh, listener who submitted that is a fake ad uh, for our listener contest. If you're still not in for that, you have until August 15th to email us an entry. The more details on the Sectarian Review podcast website. Now to the show. You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat. The scientist, the writer, the artist is challenged. If we were facing an alien threat from outside this world, the challenge must be taken up. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, where we love our institutions so much we have to burn them down. You can talk back at us at our Facebook page, Twitter, or our website, sectarianreviewpodcast.com. And whether you love to hate us or hate to love us, please go to iTunes and review the show. That helps other people find us. Now sit back and enjoy. Hey, everybody. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. As always, I'm Danny Anderson, uh, your host for this uh, fun hour of whatever we do that week. Uh, this week, we have uh, another special show. This is uh, this will fit right nicely into our little mini series that we occasionally take on called The Helpers, about people who sort of uh, see a need in the world and find a way to intervene in that need in positive ways. Uh, and so today, I'm actually really lucky to be uh, working at a place that employs uh, Dr. Elizabeth Mansley. Uh, she's my, uh, my guest today. Uh, Dr. Mansley is a colleague of mine here at Mount Aloysius College, and she has a really special interest in uh, the prison industry uh, and, and prisons and prisoners. And so uh, she's got a really 
amazing thing that she does. And I thought it, uh, that my listeners would enjoy hearing about it. So Elizabeth, how you doing? Good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Oh, I'm excited to have you. Uh, this is, uh, to me, uh, a perfect fit for what we do on the show. And it's kind of weird that I haven't had you on before. We've been talking about it for a few months and, uh, you know, scheduling and whatnot. Summer's always good. Yeah. Yeah. Summer's good. Yeah. We're just about to hit back the classes here. And uh, yeah. So uh, but we made it. So, um, Elizabeth, for the audience uh, who doesn't know you, do you want to tell us a little bit about your background, where you come from? Sure. Um, so as Danny said, I am a professor here at the Mount. I teach criminology in the Justice Law and Society Department. And I've been here for about five years. Pretty much I teach a lot of the classes that have to do with incarceration. So I teach introduction to corrections, I teach penology, and I teach victimology. So a lot of the classes I taught kind of revolve around people who have been involved in the criminal justice system. Okay. And you're from, what, what's your background? I'm from Philadelphia. What? That, ex, <laughs> that accent? No. I'm sure everybody picked it up. Um, so if you had asked me 10 years ago, would I be sitting here talking to you on this podcast? I would have said never. So I'm a recent um, kind of Western PA transplant from Philadelphia. <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, and thanks for joining us again. Um, so do you want to describe the nature of I mean, you do several kinds of things here at the prison, right? Um, do you want to just give us a rundown of the kind of work you do there? Sure. Um, so I started working at the prison kind of by chance, which I think a lot of the times is how you fall into these amazing opportunities. Uh, the, a local prison reached out and asked for volunteers to work at a mock job interview fair. That was a program where inmates who were about to be released had taken job readiness training, and as kind of their culmination project, they would practice their interview skills in front of individuals they didn't know. And you were supposed to kind of critique them on their resume, their body language, their eye contact, and they particularly asked for women because the men being incarcerated around all men, they wanted to see how comfortable they were interacting with women in a professional level. So I went over there, um, it was a really rewarding experience. Scary, too. You know, the, um, I, I still don't get used to that clang behind me of the metal door. But we walked in, and within my second interview, I just felt like I was making a difference. And I think that very rarely do you get these days where you get to do work, and then you walk out and you think, I really did something today. And so I think that that feeling, like I was hooked. After the interview process, they took us on a tour of the prison, and the reentry director at that time was talking to me about some of the needs that they had. And so from that conversation, um, I started following through with some of those needs and basically being a pest. <laughs> Can I do this? Can we do this? So um, initially what we did was we started a book drive for um, the prison library. So it was the end of the semester, students can't always sell back books and students don't always wanna take books home. So the student club that I supervised at the time, the criminology club just collected books and we then donated them. From there, um, the prison, I guess, liked that we were doing some outreach and they started regularly asking us to participate in the interview fairs. So I actually had the opportunity to bring students over give them some real life experience, something for them to talk about in an interview. And I really saw that their interaction was helping their learning. And I knew I wanted to do more. So that was kind of how it started. And then it just branched in ways I didn't expect. So the first thing that happened was what we call Operation Storybook. I was doing a service learning 
class at the time. And I was really struggling with students seeing um, incarcerated individuals as not just media portrayals. So their idea of prison was kind of like the locked up shows you see, and they were very punitive. They really felt like people that were in prison deserved to be there and they didn't deserve to get out. And they really didn't, they were really struggling with understanding the kind of wider aspects and consequences of prison. So I thought if I could figure out a way for the students to see that people that are in prison are people first and people have families, people have loved ones that maybe I could bridge some of the empathy problems that I was having. So what we did was we raised funds in the class to purchase recordable storybooks. Those storybooks were then given to fathers. The fathers would record themselves reading and then we could send the books home to their kids. The really cool thing about it was the prison let us actually throw up a party. So my students got to see the dads interacting with their kids and giving them the gifts. They also let my students interview the father that they had bought the books for. Mm. And then that way they got to ask them questions about what's it like to parent from prison? How has this impacted your children? How did you tell your child? Where does your child think you are? And they got to see at first, these are just dads, right? Dads who've done something wrong, but still dads. And then they got to see kids who haven't done anything wrong, right? Suffering. And I really helped them kind of start to see these broader implications of what we're doing with prison. Yeah, and to see the um, people as human beings, right? And not necessarily just, you know, figments of the popular imagination. Real people. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so that project went really well. They really, my students got a lot from it. Um, the incarcerated men got a lot from it. They actually gave my students a standing ovation oh. at the holiday party and their families stood up. And it was just really such a worthwhile experience. We've done it three times since then. Yeah. Uh, so service, uh, just you mentioned this was part of a service learning, just for people who may not know, that's a, a specific kind of class here at the Mount that uh, has specific kinds of goals and assignments, right? You want to tell us a little bit about that? Right. So service learning is the idea that you, you have to take what you're learning in the classroom and apply it in the real world. And Mount Aloysius has a value of service. So to tie that all together, the students in these classes will do a project or some kind of outreach whereby they'll gain things, insights from the community, but they'll also give back to the community that this college is located in. So it's, a, it's an opportunity to take learning a little bit outside the classroom and make it real life for them. Yeah, and yeah, it's part of our Sisters of Mercy kind of founding uh, ethos, really. Uh, we have four critical concerns, right? Uh, uh, justice, service, hospitality, and, and mercy, right? And so, uh, yeah, and that, that kind of class fits right into that. Um, so uh, tell me uh, what the program looks like like now. What kinds of, it's not just one program. I know you do several things. Right. Tell, tell us as much as you want to about okay. that. So based on what happened with the men, we were able to go to another prison that housed female inmates. And so um, for a different class that I taught, we did the same project for mothers, and then those mothers were able to receive the books um, to their children for Mother's Day. So it was kind of a nod to the fact that mothers are also incarcerated and gave my students a chance to see kind of some of the different reasons that women tend to wind up in prison as compared to men. And also how um, pressing a concern it is for these mothers, particularly like custody issues. A lot of them didn't get to see their children at all, mm -hmm. which was um, 
pretty different from the men who got to see their children more regularly. So they got to see some of those gender differences in incarceration. Um, from there, one of the really cool things that happened was that reentry director I told you about initially suggested a program called Inside Out. Inside Out is a program housed at Temple University. It's coming up on 20 years old this year, actually. And the idea is to put students and inmates in class together, right? And by putting them in an environment where they can learn together, break down some of the barriers that we have. So the inside students are how we refer to the incarcerated men or women in the class and the outside students are your traditional college students. So I attended a training became certified in that. And through that program, we have actually taught three different classes over at the prison, half students and half inmates. Mm. So to date, um, about 45 of our students and about 30 um, incarcerated men have taken those classes together. And what's that like for our students? I mean, or, and, and for their students? Our students um, reported as life-changing and that really didn't surprise me because the training that I received was life-changing. So for the students to get that experience, I was so grateful. And that was really what I hoped would happen. But they always walk out of that class like wanting to kind of fight against this like incarceration system and change the system and realize that there are flaws with how we do things. It also really helps them see that these are people. And I think sometimes we forget that when we hear the statistics or we hear about really horrible crimes, we forget that there's people. And a lot of those people have committed crimes that might not really seem as horrific as the ones that we focus on. So I think it does that for our students. For the incarcerated men, what it really does is, one, it inspires them to think that if they haven't gone to college, they can. So they're often hanging in class with these students, communicating well doing the workload, and in many cases, sometimes surpassing the work that's turned in by our students. So my hope is that it inspires them to continue education. Some of the men, though, who are highly educated, I think it addresses kind of a void mm -hmm. in prison of like intellectual conversation. And so they report that it gives them something better to talk about instead of TV shows or sports. Yeah, that's uh, you gave me the opportunity to sit in on a book club or two uh, at, at the prison. And that was one thing that was uh, eye-opening to me was the fact that, I, I guess I knew this intellectually, but uh, you know it's not actively in my mind, but some of these people are, are really, really educated and really, really smart and come from um, backgrounds that you wouldn't expect that would lead them into prison, right? And, and so there is a, a, a sense of being cut off from the life of the mind that this is serving uh, those folks in, in really powerful ways. I could see that immediately. I also think even if individually they want to do that, it's not an environment where they are able to discuss it with each other. So really giving them kind of a safe space to communicate those high level thoughts, I really think opens that environment and then it spreads is my hope. Yeah. And so I, I've not, I mean, I went to a graduation that you held for Inside Out, um, but I have I do know about the book club. Is that a separate thing completely or is it just something you were looking for more stuff to do at the prison? <laughs> that actually, so that's separate in that um, because Inside Out is through some college regulations every spring semester, I felt almost like I was dumping them. Like I would come in, bring this like intellectual curiosity, this wonderful environment, give it to them for 15 weeks and then go away 
for, you know, the next nine months and then come back and try to pick it up again. And because of the demand um, of the men who want to take the class, not everyone could get in who wanted to take it. So I wanted to kind of try to address that. So what came about from that was the idea that I could volunteer and just teach a class, me, to incarcerated men. So I would come in and run it just like a college class. They took exams, they wrote papers, and I would do that in the fall semester. So fall they would have a class with me, spring they would have an inside out class. And then that way it at least gave them the academic year. Mm -hmm. The problem then was summer, right? So here comes summer and we get to go away, college classes stop, we recharge. And I had this, what I thought was a crazy idea of a book club. And I thought, hey, I'm just going to offer it to these guys and see if they wanted to do it. And my thought initially was we would just do it for like June and July. And um, they loved it. And so because of that, we've actually had the book club now. We're going on two years of book club. And we meet um, once a month. So that book club continues even during a class just with me or an inside-out class. And the book club is cool because it can... um, all the men that want to take it can take it. They can come out for a month. If something's going on, they can pick it back up. And so that kind of has more a rolling admission, if you will. And it allows me to kind of get access to like the newly arriving men who might not feel like they can handle class, but might be willing to give a book club a try. Yeah, that's great. And it sort of preps them then for uh, for that other kind of the, the flagship uh, program of the prison uh, work that you do, right? Um, and I have to say from experience, the books that you guys are reading, these are not like uh, airport reading. I mean, I, you read a Philip Roth book, The Human Stain, uh, that I sat in on. Uh, there, I, uh, Lord of the Flies, I think, was another one. You did the giant, what was the giant King Arthur book? <laughs> we did Mr. Babylon and The Once and Future King. Yeah, yeah. so these are these are heady books that um, these folks are really kind of voraciously tackling. And, and it was, uh, it's a really, I have to say, nothing against my normal students but that was a level of um excitement in a class quote unquote uh that you don't normally get in in a normal college class uh like there was such a a level of engagement and, and inquiry there that it was it was a bit of a high and it's like humbling i feel yeah and it's really weird to me to have everyone actually having read it yeah. Like I love my traditional students, but usually I'm lucky if a third have read what they're supposed to. Now I know they have read it. They have questions. They have follow-ups um, because they don't have access to the internet. They'll often um, come up with a list of questions they want me to research for them about yeah. an author, about the background, about the popularity of a book. Um, so it's been really neat, um, but a challenge for me coming up with books, you know, that 10 or 15 men would really enjoy. So that's been kind of the struggle. And also buying them all, finding the funding for the book club yeah. was hard at first. Yeah, but you've gotten some uh, some nice resources for that recently. I have. Um, the Alumni Association here at the college has actually um, gave me a sum of money. And then several people who hear about it or faculty members hear about it and they'll offer to buy a book or just give me a little money and say, hey, please use this towards the book club. The faculty also has their own book club and they've donated um, books that they've read. And so it's been a really nice kind of program where a lot of people have helped me out. A lot of hands carry that. Yeah. Yeah. We're actually recording in uh, the office here in the criminology department and with the shelf of <laughs> some of the book club books here. And, and yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a philologist stream in a lot of ways. <laughs> I, I think you're right. Um, so 
you had earlier mentioned uh, we know we live in an area that's sort of like former coal country, right? Yes. Uh, and so a lot of the industry that came in to replace that was prisons, right? And so it's it's it is an industry here. It um, it's not just a there's no coincidence. Um, and you had mentioned earlier about the difficult some of the preconceptions um, that students come in with regards to that that industry. Um, do you want to talk about? In general terms, the some people call it the prison industrial complex, and and some of the issues in criminal justice. Um, as a professor, one of the major challenges to try to teach the correction side is that so many of the students come from um, families with parents who are in law enforcement, right? So they come from a history of policing, and they have that kind of worldview, which of course makes sense. That's how you're raised, and that that would be what you would think. And so what often happens then is they've had very little exposure to the almost the hidden side of criminal justice, which is corrections. And so they have they've never been in a prison. They've never really talked to someone who was incarcerated. They've never even talked to um, a correctional officer. And very often they'll enter those jobs with no experience whatsoever. What's unique about the college here is that because we're in kind of a rural area, there are a lot of prisons pretty close to where we are. So in a sense, you would think outreach would be easy, but often prisons are not eager to have academics, particularly criminologists come in because of a history of not really seeing their viewpoint. And so a lot of the times it's balancing all these diverse views, right? And even with the prison that I work with, it's convincing them that the benefits outweigh a security risk, Mm -hmm. right? And that and that I have to be clear that I understand why there are security risks when you're working with a prison. Mm -hmm. And to communicate to them, I can only do this because they do their part. And so a lot of it is kind of valuing the work that everyone does. At the same time, no one could really argue this is working, right? If 70% of the individuals released from prison are back within three years, we have to kind of stop and say, is this really the best way to do this? Or are we? what goal are we trying to accomplish? And so I spent a lot of time kind of talking to students about like, what is the purpose of prison? Is the purpose to help people not do it again? Is the purpose just punishment? And that that is often a struggle, right? And so I think a lot of the, the work that I try to do is to help with this idea of reentry, right? What can we do to help when when they get out? Right. And what we know works is education, strong family bonds and a job. So a lot of the programs that we've tried to do are really to help them stay out. Um, so what do you think? Uh, I, I just want I'm kind of want to pick while I have you here. I want to pick your brain about uh, sort of the prison industry and some of the problems. Um, private. We. I, I don't know that there are private prisons in this area per se. Uh, there are probably some fairly near, but not in the immediate area. Um, that is a big issue, though, kind of uh, in academia. And like, what are you want to lay out the problem with private prisons and 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 why they are sort of problematic for uh, people who are actually interested in solving the problems of crime? Uh, private prisons are basically an anathema, right, to kind of what we're trying to do here because they exist because you have people who fill the beds. So for them, there's not really a need to keep people from reoffending because they exist 
because people are reoffending. So very often at those institutions, there's little to no effort for reintegration. They almost serve as warehouses. And the problem is, my view is, if you were going to lock people up, you know, and I think that there are people who've done things that deserve to be locked up for, can we use that time to try to make these people better? Like, isn't that really what, what we should be doing? So in a private prison, if they're not doing any of that, there's no room for any kind of reentry programs whatsoever. I also talk to the students because a lot of the problem is the training that the COs receive. Um, and by CO, I mean correctional officer um, at these two institutions, right? So at a private prison, they're often paid less, hmm. trained less, and yet watching more individuals. Whereas at kind of state run, federal run, the pay is better, the training is better, the ongoing training is better, they're unionized. So they have a lot more benefit at those prisons, which comes at a cost. So I think that part of the problem too is the individuals that often work at those private prisons are not as equipped to handle a lot of the needs of the inmates. Yeah, I happen to know, I mean, just living in this area, I mean, quite a few people who are employed by the prison system. And these are public prisons. Um, and I just by being friends with them, I know how difficult that job is. And when you take away the the protections that they do have and, and the resources that they do have uh, in, in these places, in public prisons, and you take those away in the private prison setting, I can't imagine what it must be like either to be an inmate or a correctional officer in, in that environment. And that's really important to me that the students get that. I don't want them to ever think that while we're working to help inmates, we're forgetting that there's a group of people who are doing a very difficult job. Right. And so I'm really I really stress to students how much we have to thank the correctional officers for making it possible for us to be there. Um, I've received actually no negativity from any of the correctional officers about the work that I do. They've been mm. highly supportive. I mean, I know in one sense it kind of helps them to have like a carrot to offer. But I think a lot of it is a genuine concern for people and wanting to help people do better. I think that um, we often don't kind of acknowledge that really important work that they do and that security is paramount for them. They have to worry about those things. And so I often kind of try to make sure I'm also communicating that to students as I'm talking about offenders, you know, not to forget that there are victims and there also are people who are doing this really dangerous work. So it's really multiple balls kind of up in the air at the same time that you don't even really realize until you get in there. Are there models elsewhere uh, in other countries for uh, prison uh, reform that you think we here in America should uh, sort of look at and try to adapt? Definitely um, some of the other countries have way more emphasis on reintegration and obviously their incarceration rates are lower. Um, I think one of the big reasons is the way they view um, drugs. Right, that they tend to view them more as a, a social problem and um, a health issue and a medical problem rather than um, a crime problem. So very often they're not dealing a lot with the, the sickness of addiction. Another major difference is the mental health treatment in a lot of the other countries. Um, when I talk to correctional officers, one thing that they'll say is they, they are shocked by how much mental illness is in prison, right? That often that with kind of the deinstitutionalization of mental health, many people who would have been in a mental hospital are now in prison and trying to protect those people, but also protect people from 
those people is really hard, right? So I think that a lot of the problem is like the way we handle mental illness in this country and the way we handle drugs. But um, interestingly enough, when I was researching the book club, there's a national program in Canada called Books for Inmates. Mm -hmm. And it's in almost every Canadian prison where they do book club once a month. So initially I was like congratulating myself on this amazing idea. It turns out it's not, it's not just my idea. Like a lot of people have those programs. So like all, we know these things about the arts that help and education that helps. Um, and we are trying now, right? So we've kind of reinstituted offering college classes at prison with some trial Pell Grant programs again. And I think that that's all good. I would hope that we kind of continue that work. Yeah. What is it? I mean, do you think about reading a book with other people uh, that is uh, therapeutic? What, uh, to be honest with you, the success of the book club, which um, the men have actually named afterwards, has shocked me. And I've thought a lot about why it is that book club works. And what they do is I've noticed they'll take the story and they'll analyze the characters and they'll analyze decisions that characters make. And then you start to hear them talk about themselves. Right. So very often um, they'll engage in a discussion about a particular character. And I see why he thought that, because I used to think that, too. And so what it's allowed them to do is reveal things about themselves in a way that's safe, in a way that's kind of controlled in an environment where they don't get a lot of self-disclosure. So I think that they've kind of used that in a sense to, as therapy. Right. And um, we've tried to pick books that talk about like concepts of justice and redemption and identity that allow them to ask questions like that. So I think that it gives them kind of like a safety almost to hide behind characters mm. and then push through that and talk about themselves. Yeah, I just I mean, from my own personal experience there, I do. Now that you're mentioning that, I do. Rem I mean, it, I recall that much of the kind of questions and the things that were interesting to them had to do with like individual characters and not necessarily plot. Uh, so, so many of our students here, I mean, just fixate on plot, what happens, right? And, and, and these uh, folks are much more likely to, to read these books and as if they were true people that they're reading about. And I wonder if it has something to do with like giving them um, a vision, like a transcendent kind of vision to look at themselves from the outside uh, and, and do a little self analysis. And I think if those of us who are interested in the humanities and we're wondering why people don't like the humanities anymore and stuff, maybe we're teaching it wrong. I mean, I do think that it's, it's most powerful function might be this kind of ethical uh, reflective one. I also wonder if part of it is age, right? So that the men tend to be a little older. So what often happens is that inside out class is our students, our traditional students are awed by how smart these men are, how well these men can communicate, how these men are not intimidated to say kind of what their opinion is. And what I've seen happen to our students is they rise. And it always awes me that when they come out, that our students come out better students and I always try to communicate that to the incarcerated men whose question is, why are they coming here, right? I think that part of the problem is breaking down this. Why would anyone want to come here who does not have to, mm. right? And you have to do some upfront work to get them to trust you, right? So that they know that you're not there to use them. You're not there to judge them. And um, a large part of Inside Out is kind of breaking down 
not just um, our students' preconceived notions, but also inmates' preconceived notions about students. So there's a lot of that kind of negotiating. But I think part of the problem, too, is testing, mm-hmm. right? So when students read a book, they know you're going to ask them questions about what happened so that they can prove that they read it. Whereas in book club, the men know they're not getting tested. So I think that that does open a little bit. But the really cool thing with book club is because of the college, I've actually been able to have different professors come and talk about something tangential to the book. So I've had history professors come, like we read a book about the World's Fair Mm. and talk about why the World's Fair was important. Um, We've read a book about mental illness and I've had professors come and explain some of the biochemistry of mental illness. So it's allowed really kind of us to take, that's why they call it afterwards, right? So after the words, we actually try to apply it. So I also think just the format of this book club, rather than meeting once a month, we actually meet twice a month has also led to kind of some of that higher, higher level discussion. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think that when I look at the problems that you've outlined in the prison system in general, primarily being an emphasis on punishment and not necessarily rehabilitation, I think that the book club and Inside Out are both very um, excellent efforts to address that problem, that underlying problem. Um, do you have like, uh, I, I know that you probably can't name names or anything like that, but, uh, like stories that you think are particularly like indicative of the success of these kinds of activities? I do. I have, um, a story of someone, I think in life you, you get these chances where you meet people who change your life. Right. And very often you don't realize that they're changing your life until way after. So I met a man two years ago in a class I taught, and he was a 65-year-old man, um, really small in stature, really gentle, super engaged in the class, and um, super engaged in book club. You would often um, get emotional about book club, and I was really kind of humbled by like his level of honesty, but also kind of the, the gentleness and respect that he received from all the other men in the class. And as as the story unfolded, I found out that he was in prison um, for possession and intent to distribute crystal meth. He had received a 20-year sentence, and he had been incarcerated when he was um, 50. Mm. He was um, in food service, and people who've worked in restaurants kind of know drugs are pretty prevalent, and that he had served um, up to that time 14 years of his sentence. And he revealed to me, um, and to the men actually in the book club, that he was also homosexual and that a lot of things had changed. Like he couldn't imagine what the world was like, you know, compared to 15 years ago. And that he really wanted a chance to give back, right? That he had been in book club and that he had been in this class and he felt like he could do something to make things better for people the way book club had made things better for him, right? Giving him this opportunity to share things. His sentence was commuted on the last day of President Obama's um, presidency. Okay. And so he found out that they were going to take four years off his sentence. So he has volunteered to work at an AIDS hospice um, to help men through like the end of their lives who are suffering with that disease and that's his way to give back. Mm. And so I think that, you know, that given the chance, many people want to do better, right? And so, like, everyone who met him, all our students, all the faculty that met him were touched and were so, I know the sisters were praying for his commutation to go through and that, 
if there was a man who deserved a second chance and I felt like was running with it, like he was Mm -hmm. one of those men. Um, the other stories really that touch me kind of as a, as a parent with young children are the ones of the, the parents. And so, um, a really painful one was I went, when I was at the women's prison, I had to actually record the books with the mothers. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, they're like these Hallmark books that come out at Christmas. Um, and you can record yourself reading them. So as you turn the page, it's actually you reading the book. So it's almost like a pseudo kind of reading your child to bed. I had a mother who couldn't read. And I all I could think of was she would memorize the page. We'd have to memorize the page and record it and that... Like, what chance are we giving you when you get out? You know, you have a record. You can't read. You're battling addiction to drugs. She was in there for shoplifting. (laughs) And I just thought, you know, like, how are we setting her up kind of in a situation where she will not be right back here? So I've kind of seen a lot of that. I've seen a lot of families really struggling. One thing the students actually picked up on is um, usually when you see your child after the end of the day, like, they run right at you, you know, and you've only been gone a couple hours and they tackle you and hug you and that it was such an artificial environment that this, that their children would come in and kind of line up almost across from them and not break that physical barrier. So I think a lot of kind of what I've learned about is how it's not just, you don't just lock up a person, you lock up a family and that for those children, you know, there's, it's hard to kind of, and I've talked to some of those children about having a parent in prison is kind of not the same as having a parent who's away in say the military where you can like kind of take a pride in that identity. Often they're embarrassed and ostracized and stigmatized because of it. So I've really started to realize it's not just one person that's suffering, you know, and that is really why I want, if, if we're locking them up, I really want it to mean something. And that makes, I mean, that what you just identified, this isn't just a, a single person. This is a, a, a family and a community uh, that you're also sort of uh, locking up here. I mean, that makes this kind of work all the more important. Um, if someone is listening and wants to do something like this, do you have any advice for how to pursue uh, a need like this? I would first of all say don't be discouraged because in general, um, just kind of the prison industry wants to turn you down. And you have to really have a very laid out plan because they do have very legitimate security concerns that are not just for their protection, but for your protection and also for the protection of the inmates. So you have to kind of keep pursuing what you want to do. Um, they have training for volunteers. I make our students get it too, just so they're kind of aware of issues that they might not have thought about. And I really think you want to think about what the need might be and what your ability is to address that need. Otherwise, um, they take there's donation centers all over the country for just books for inmates for that. Do the book club. If that's something that you find, um, this operation Storybook, you know, donation so we can buy more books for children. That's something that you can do. Um, they're always looking for outside individuals to do those mock interview fairs because they really need people that are, that are regular in quotes, right, for the men to interact with. So I think that there are opportunities to volunteer at a prison, but you have to be aware Mm -hmm. of the training that it's going to require. You also have to be really flexible. I mean, I've shown up at the prison with students and for one reason or another, we've had to go away, right? Or they've called me two hours before we're supposed to leave and we can't come in at that Mm -hmm. time. So you also have to kind of enter it with like a flexibility that um, you don't always need in volunteering. 
Yeah, and if you can find, like you found the the certification program at Temple, right? Right. Um, If you can find something like that that give you some credential, I suppose. Yeah, a lot of religious groups have programs for outreach. Mm. Um, They told me at this prison that 85% of their volunteers are actually religious-based. So like through your religious organization, they might actually have an outreach program that you can participate in too. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, for professors who are interested inside out is always looking to kind of train people. Yeah. And as uh, like we incarcerate far more people than any other country, right? I, I believe. And uh, so this is a need that is all over America. And if you have a, uh, uh, if you're looking for something to, to contribute to, this is a, a noble one, uh, a noble cause, I think. Um, Elizabeth, do you have any last thoughts, anything to add? Um, I would just like to say that people often um, want to congratulate me or, you know, tell me how amazing what I do is. And, I really feel like I'm the lucky person that I get to go in there and be surrounded by people who really want to learn, who really appreciate what you're doing. And that, I mean, I think that's the true lesson of volunteering is you always get more than you give. And I didn't know that going in. And I'm just so grateful for that opportunity. So even if you, if the prison is in a place you want to volunteer, I just think if you give it a try, you might really get so much more than you ever thought. Like, I don't think that I would feel complete now if I wasn't given the opportunity to volunteer in the prison. Mm. And I would never have thought that before I started. You know, I just thought, I'm so busy. I have little children. I'm an academic. You know, I work full time. I'm trying to be a parent. And carving just those couple hours out has just made my life better. And I didn't know that that was going to happen until it happened. Mm. And I'm so grateful for that. So I would hope that people would maybe just give volunteering in some semblance a try for an issue that matters to them. That's great. Uh, Elizabeth, thank you so much for uh, volunteering uh, to show up on the show today. Uh, it was great to hear from you. This is, I think, really important work that you do. And I think that my listeners are would be are particularly receptive to this sort of thing. Um, I hope that you've inspired someone to go do something um, uh, along those lines. I I think that it's just it's it's a beautiful thing, and, and the little the small contact that I've had with it, uh, it, it is very. Um, meaningful uh, uh just on a personal level and and it, it really does open your mind to other perspectives uh in a extremely powerful way so uh elizabeth thanks for joining us today thank you so much